Sisters, this is Silver Star 1982. The first period class will be taught by our brother John McConville of Reseda, California. His general subject is called The Second Epistle of Peter, and the title of his first class this morning is Attributes of God. To lead us in the reading of this opening chapter of Second Peter, we'll ask our brother Tom Siegel of Grants Pass. Now, much pleasure in asking our brother John McConville to come and speak to us on the subject of attributes of God. Brother John. Put that in the light so we'll have no problem telling when to stop. My dear brothers and sisters and young people, friends, you'll have to pardon me if, as I go through this letter that Peter's writing to us, on behalf of God, if I repeat some things, because they're repeated, and because I believe that the word of God is given to teach us how we should live our life. Oh, I know it has basic principles that we understand and believe as truth, but if those principles do not lead us into a way of life, a way of living, that causes us to be something of value to God. It's of no avail at all. And so you'll find that as I'm proceeding through this, and we will have uh, words that we will consider, but the thing we want to really consider is how those passages that have these words in them, how they will affect our life. Because what we're seeking for is life. And everything in this book is meant, designed to teach us how to live, how to be one with our God, so that when people see us, they see Jesus Christ walking upon the face of this earth again. That's what's vital. We have no other calling but but that which is to manifest forth the glory of God. So as we consider these things, Just bear in mind, you want this as a personal message for yourself. You want to take this into your heart and make it move you. But if it's just learning knowledge, it's of no avail. But it's teaching us how to cope with problems. It's teaching us how to cope with success. It's teaching us how to cope with truth and what to do with it. So some things appeal to me more than others, and I may repeat them. But it's only because the word of God is hopefully filling my heart to the point where I want nothing else. And each of us comes from a different environment and there are things that affect us more. Each of us have just gone through problems, maybe involved in problems that are affecting us right now. And of course, we're going to look at passages, we're going to hear them in just a little different sense, because it's how you feel at the moment that will cause you to understand what a verse means. And that's why when we do our readings every day, and we do them every day, don't we? When we do our readings every day, we get a little different 
aspect of the same verses that we understood before and they just keep growing for us. Now, with that kind of an introduction, I would like to look at Peter as a personal message from this apostle, this great man for us. For us, Sure, it was written to the people of his day and they had great benefit out of it and it, it developed them and it caused them to walk in a way that was pleasing to God. Gave them warning, it gave them admonition, it uplifted them, it encouraged them. But it was very, very sobering on occasion. So we'll begin with the first verse. And we'll probably just cover half this chapter. And that's not by design, I might add, it's just because we've got six classes. <laughs> we could really, you know, take any one verse and just start working on it through the scriptures. And that's what happens when you study. We have a mutual improvement class. And we have young brethren who are just beginning to look at the scriptures to see what they say. And they're, they're finding you give them a chapter and they say, how can I talk for ten minutes on that? And then they start looking at a section of the chapter and they say, well, I don't have enough time. So then you say, well, I'll give you just a couple of verses. And they say, well, I don't have time. Well, give you a word. And that's the way it goes as we get involved in the the Word of God, it becomes more and more exciting and there's so much of it you just can't cover. And another amazing thing is it doesn't matter whether you're starting in Deuteronomy or you're starting in Peter or Malachi. It's the same word and it's the same beautiful thing. First verse, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And right off the bat, as I began looking at Simon, why Simon? You know in the first epistle of Peter, he didn't say that. Did you notice that? First Peter 1, he just says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I said to myself, well, why did he, does he say in the second epistle, then Simon Peter? And then I found that Simon is only, that form of the word Simon is only used seven times in the New Testament. And I wondered to myself, well, why would he say Simon Peter in this case? And I really don't know. Maybe some of you will enlighten me. But the word, the name, is taken right out of the Old Testament. A Hebrew word. And it means to hear. It means to hear intelligently. Everybody hears. Well, almost everybody. We hear. But we don't really hear intelligently. And that's the difference with this word. It's hearing intelligently. And so then as I, I looked at that, it said Simon Peter, and Peter means rock. It's a servant, and the word servant is a slave. We know it's not just like a servant that we think about, is it? We hire a man who does a job for us, and it's over. Well, that's a bond slave. An apostle, one who is sent, Jesus Christ. And I said, if you put all that together, you come up with this introduction by Peter, which says, hearing intelligently, a rock becomes a slave of Jesus Christ. And that's what's going to happen in your life every time, anyone's life. If you hear intelligently the word of God, you'll be a rock who is a slave to Jesus Christ. Now I think that's what Peter's going to give us. Some way to become a rock 
who is voluntarily surrendering his will to the will of the Heavenly Father and doing those things that he wants us to do. Now, whether or not that's all involved in that, I don't know, but I like that understanding because it tells me how I've got to live. It tells me how to listen to the words of Peter. And he goes on to say, to them, that's to us, that have obtained like precious faith. And oh, have we obtained like precious faith. That word obtained means to get something by lot. Something that has been allotted to you. Something that's been apportioned out. It isn't just that you were walking down the street and you saw it laying on the side of the road and picked it up. No, it's something that's been given to you. It's something that's been allotted to you. It's not just by chance that you're in Jesus Christ. Time and chance don't happen to us in that form. We are called specifically by God. We are invited to attend to the things of the Lord, to be a part of the family of God. It's only used a few times. Look at Luke, the first chapter. Luke chapter 1, verse 9. Remember this incident as Zacharias went in to do his service in the temple? Ninth verse. He went in according to the custom of the priest's office. His lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. That was his apportionment. That's what he was called upon to do. His lot. His, that's which he obtained as part of his priesthood. It wasn't just something that he could do or not do. It was an appointment. And that's the same with us. 19th chapter of John is the second place it's used. 19th chapter of John. And at verse 24. The death of Jesus Christ. They said therefore among themselves, let us not rend it, that is the garment of Christ, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. And that was for the raiment, wasn't it, of Jesus Christ. Let us cast lots for it. That's the same word. They got it by the roll of a dice, didn't they? It was their portion because of what happened with the roll of a dice. Well, it was allotted to that person who had whatever. And one other place, Acts, the first chapter, 17th verse. And this is in relation to Judas. And in the 17th verse, it's the first chapter of Acts, it says, For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of the ministry. So Judas had obtained. Now, how did the Apostles obtained the ministry. Was it just 12 people were wandering around and said, oh, I'd like to be part of that? No. Jesus Christ went about and he selected 12 men. It was a portion to them. Now, who are, you know, I was talking to a brother yesterday, and who are the Christadelphians? Who are we? Are, are we any better than anyone else? Of course not. No, we have all the problems within ourselves and within our body. 
We have all the problems of all the people in the world. We go through the same troubles and we make the same mistakes. Who are we? What makes us of any value? Well, there is no value in us per se. The value comes of what God can put into us. That's where the value is. Now, God has looked at us and in his omniscience, he's able to see something that he can work with. And so he's apportioned to us to be something of use to him. And he's working with us. Now, if he finds that and he knows us ahead of time. But if he finds that we are of no value, we lose our allotment. So we become special only in the sense of allowing God to take this vessel, which is not too sturdy in itself, and to fill it up with the word of God till it's overflowing once it gets to overflowing, everybody knows about it because you keep spouting it out. You can't keep it in. But you know, if you never let it fill up, you become a means under yourself. And you don't find anywhere in Scripture that you should have good measure that's only half full. No, the good measure in the Scripture is where it's shaken together so you get in a little more. And then you keep pouring it anyway until it flows over the... That's how we've been apportioned. This vessel of wood, which is being covered with gold, to hold the word of life, is overflowing and we let it go to anyone. This is an apportionment, an allotment that's given to us. We've obtained like precious faith. That's been given to us. We've done nothing to deserve it. God has called us, invited us to partake of this wonderful word of salvation. It's been given to you. Now if that doesn't fill your heart with gratitude, if that doesn't fill your heart with love for this great creator, nothing else will. Just knowing. And not because we were of any value, but because God saw something in you, and you, and you, that he could use. That's wonderful. Don't fight that. If he picks you up and puts you in here as your slot in life, accept it. Just use it to go on to produce glory for God, to honor his name. Now that's who Peter's writing to. We've had this kind of a faith given to us. But it's a precious faith. And it's a like, same faith that, that Peter had. Like precious faith, the same. No different than any of the apostles. They were given, given the same faith. Now, it doesn't matter that they were given the Holy Spirit. That didn't help their faith in any way. That like precious faith is the same thing that's been given to us. We've been given the results of everything that they received. You don't have to see a miracle, although you're seeing one in Israel. But you don't have to see a miracle You've got the results of all of that Holy Spirit that was poured upon these 12 apostles. So your like precious faith is like theirs. We have this marvelous gift of God. But it's 
with us in or through or in the righteousness of God. That's where it lies. Not in our own righteousness. Now it says, the scriptures are very definite. You have to be righteous. But it has to be the righteousness of God. And it says also, and the righteousness of Christ, our Savior. Because God elected to work through Jesus. Now, the only way this like precious faith is of any value, if it's in them, in God, who Christ manifested perfectly. Now, that's the righteousness we are in. We've been moved from the worldly standards, from the worldly outlook into Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's why the old man's dead. That's why we can become a new creature and all things become new for us. Even though now we eat bread and, and uh, drink tea in the morning or coffee. It's in Christ now. It's not the same old humdrum. We know that here's an allotment from our Father. And we thank him every morning, don't we? We thank him every noon. We thank him every night. We thank and we thank and we praise and we praise because we are now in a righteousness that the world knows nothing about. It's God's righteousness. And this apportionment we don't ever want to forget. And he says in the second verse, grace and peace be multiplied. We all know that grace is, is this undeserved kindness, sure, and the peace is adjoining a oneness with God, a oneness with the hope that he's held out for man. And he says, let that be multiplied unto you. You understand how gracious God has been to you? I think you do. The Father. We've enjoyed, that's what peace is, we've been joined together. One with the Father. We're no longer just separate people running around doing their own thing. Every imagination of our heart, that's not our, our mode of operation now. No. We're one with the Father. When people hear us speak, whom do they hear speak? Why, sure, the Word of God. That's marvelous. Oh, let it be multiplied to you. How hard it was for me to say out in public, uh, God willing. Try it, you'll like it. And it becomes so normal after a while, you wouldn't even know you're saying it because it's something you believe and you say it. God willing. Because our life now is God willing. Our whole existence is now God willing. We are one with the Father and we don't care what kind of uh, chagrin that puts upon us from the world out there. They don't know. They can't understand these things. Oh, let it be multiplied. And that's what Peter is saying. Let it be multiplied unto you through or in the knowledge of God. And that's really the only way. That word knowledge is, is gnosis, but it's got EPI in front of it. And it's seems to have the idea of full knowledge. I mean, it's, it's the knowledge of God, the, the entire scope of all of God's being. So that this oneness comes in the knowledge of God. 
in the fullness of God. And he knows everything. We know that. He knows everything. Knows what we're thinking right now. And so this oneness with God, this grace that we have, is in this knowledge. can't be outside of God. It can only be in the things concerning Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus, our Lord. This is the knowledge that we have to have and that fullness. That's why we don't skip parts of Scripture, right? I mean, we don't think, well, that's rather a boring passage. (laughs) No, we don't do that. Even if we want to do it, we force ourselves. Because these, these words weren't put in here just as an exercise to fill up your readings. Oh, these words are put in here because they're life. They're what God wants you to become familiar with so that you speak this way. The full knowledge of God. So that's the salutation, verses 1 and 2. From whom to whom? Then he, verses 3 and 4, God's divine plan through the knowledge of the promises is talked about. In the third verse, he continues that same sentence. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things. According, or in that manner, it's given unto us all things. In that manner, through the knowledge of God. All things, and it means all things. Does it just mean, did you know that everything that's happening in the world is happening for your sake? That's why Reagan's in power. Trudeau, is that the way you pronounce his name? I am not French. That's why everybody is in power for your sake. This isn't to give them glory and honor. That's for our sakes. People are being lined up. Things are progressing in the world that this whole thing might be turned over to us. Isn't that wonderful? Do you ever get tired of hearing that or thinking about it? He says we're going to have glory in the future. We've got, you don't have to wait for the future. We've got it right now. Just in the knowledge that God is using all of these things for our benefit. And as I said, not because we're of any value, but because we're receptacles that are useful. One of us might have two handles, one only one. One might have a spigot, one might have just a big mouth. (laughs) Some of us do, you know. But it doesn't matter. He uses us, he found us, that we might be given all things. And all these things pertain unto life, he says. That life is the essence of God. It's the word Z-O-E. Essence of God. It's, it's what we've got now, but it's, it's kind of a temporal thing now, isn't it? How quickly uh, that life can be snuffed out, taken away from us. But the essence of God can never. Because when you die, it doesn't matter that you're dead. Because you're alive. God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And it doesn't matter if you happen to be six feet underground. That's immaterial. You're alive. And one day that life that we have right now is going to be made never-ending. We're going to become 
one with God in that sense, never-ending life. Can you not be moved? You've got to be moved. Our religion isn't a religion of emotion. Is that right? <laughs> it's a religion based upon fact. It's a religion based upon the word of God. It's a religion that has to be learned. It has to be put into your mind. But you can't have something that brings you back to God and not have it move you. If it doesn't move you, it's not doing its job. Every piece of scripture should move you, move you closer. Emotion comes out of knowledge, out of understanding, out of a oneness with the Father. You cannot stop that. A given life and godliness, all these things pertain unto life and godliness. God-likeness. You're like God. Doesn't matter that you're a woman or a man. Doesn't matter. You're like God. God-likeness. Because it's up here that you become God-like. Then all of this kind of follows along. It's like playing the organ. <laughs> How do you keep two hands going in a different direction and feet doing something else? How do you do that? It's because you put something in up here and you work at what's up here and you start so much so that you don't have to worry about what the left hand is doing as you're figuring out the melody. Isn't that right? It's marvelous. It's because this knowledge of God has been given to us and we become God-like. We're able to do things we could never dream of doing we can do now so that we can do all things in Christ. Even though we have no power of ourselves, we can do all things in Christ. And so we have this life and godlikeness through the knowledge of him that have called us to glory, to his glory, and to his virtue. In the fourth verse he says, whereby, or through which, are given unto us exceeding, you can't get a, a better word than that, exceeding, great and precious promises. Is that how you is that how you view them? You've been given exceeding great and precious promises. Very expensive, dear things have been given to us. Well, you know, you can't be baptized, can you, if you don't know the promises made to Abraham. You can't do it. Because you have to know those things. But do you know that they are dear, that they are precious, exceeding great? I'm sure you do. And every day you live, you, you know it more and more. So much so that no one can shake you from those great and precious promises. We become so familiar with them that we take them for granted sometimes. But great and precious they are. And we must talk about them. I heard someone say one time, well, coming to lecture is, 
is rather a bore these days because it seems we get the same old lectures, you know. We're talking about the promises to Abraham and the promises to David and that God is one and that we hear the same thing over and over again. Well, what are we looking for? Something new? No, we're looking for the same thing that brought us into salvation. We just want that to become so instilled in our minds so that the drop of the hat in the grocery store, we bump into somebody and we say we're sorry and a, a conversation comes out and out pop the promises. It's so much a part of us that we want to have it on our lips at all times. We want to feel the greatness of what has been offered to us, great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers. The word partakers is the communion. It's K-O-I-N-O-N-O-S, however you say that. It means sharing. It's a sharer. Partaker, a sharer. What is it you're a partaker of? Divine nature. If we think we're one with God now, you're going to have divine nature. I know you can't understand that, nor can I. Except I know now that the lust of the flesh gets out every now and then. And then I won't have that problem. The pride of life turns my head. Then I won't have that problem. I hit my thumb with a hammer. <laughs> but then I will not have that problem. My mother and I talk about departing this life. Then there will be no more exodus. We are forever one, one with God, divine nature. Then we can stand in a burning bush and say, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob, because for us to speak will be for God to speak. Like unto the angel, to die no more, exceeding great, Precious promises. I don't know what eternity is, but I know that this that has been offered is far and above anything any boss could offer me, any enticement that could be given by any organization in the world, any one person could turn me from. Because there is nothing more exceeding and more great than these precious promises. Divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. In this arrangement of things, there is nothing but the satisfaction of one's own desires. If it feels good, do it. That's not the way one lives. Really lives. But then he goes on in verses 5 through 7 and he tells us. Now remember this is Peter's last words trying 
to encourage the brethren and sisters. So what's he telling us? He tells us about the attributes of God. Verses 5 through 7. And besides all of this marvelous thing, he says, that I've talked about so far, or written to you about, give all diligence, that is, full of speed, full of zeal. I want to look at uh, a passage. I think it's Romans, the 12th chapter. Romans chapter 12. The eighth verse. Word is S P O U D E. I don't know how you say it. Or he that this is the eighth verse of the twelfth chapter of Romans. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He's telling us to do our best. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. That's the same word. He that ruleth with diligence. And he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Now go down to verse. Is it verse 12? Verse 11. And it says in that 11th verse, not slothful in business. Now that word business is the same word. S-P-O-U-D-E. Same word as in verse 8. Same word we're considering over here. Give all diligence. So what he's saying here is don't be slothful in zeal or in your haste to perform the will of God. And the, the, the context shows that. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit. I used, I used to think this says, when you go to work, you give a, the best job you can because you're working under the Lord. Well, it says that other places. So you should give full measure when you promise to do so. But this is saying, don't be slothful in your zeal. You know what a fanatic is? A Christadelphian. One who is like Christ. Who can think of nothing but one thing. That's what a fanatic is. He's so full of zeal, there is nothing else gets in his way or is on his mind. He thinks of only one thing. What his father has planned for this earth and the people in it. He's so filled with this, nothing else seems to get through. I think he would be considered thick. He doesn't want to expand his horizon. But he really does. Because he expands himself. Every portion of him. Every part. Until it's reaching out and grabbing for the things of God. And so he gets up in the morning and the first thing he's thinking about is what can he do for his Lord today? And in thanks, bends and bows his heart. He goes to work and it's on his mind, so that when he performs something, he does it for the Lord. When he stays home and takes care of the house, it's the Lord's house, which he has given to me, and I'll make sure it's clean. And dusting becomes a pleasure, doesn't it? I know the flesh gets in the way, sure it does. We get irritated with the boss, but why? What can he do? Poor fellow's got to make a living. That's all he's got. We don't have to worry about making a living. Our God provides for the sparrows. Will he not provide for us? Give yourself unto the Lord. 
Have that zeal so much, so fervent that nothing gets in your way. And that's what Peter's talking about here in this fifth verse when he says, beside this, giving all zeal, all the eminence that you can, the speed, all anxiety, just for one thing. Don't be anxious about this world. Be anxious about the next. Build your life now with that, he says. And what's he tell us? Verses 5 through 7, he tells about this faith that's been given to us. Then he says, I want you to take that, and God has given that to us, and now he tells us about seven things that we've got to do. Seven things that we've got to add to. And he says in this fifth verse, add to. And that word to is better rendered in. It's like a woman baking a cake. Julie will know about this. You take the first ingredient, whatever it is. And when you're making the next one, you don't throw that one away, do you? You add it in. It becomes part of the whole. So we never lose the faith that's been given to us. We just add to it. Now he tells us that that which we've been called to, we've got to add to it. We've got to put in seven other ingredients. What are they? The attributes of God. Virtue. Fifth verse. Add in virtue. It's excellence. Make that faith something that shines. Make it the best thing you've ever had in your life. Excellent. Above reproach. Something that is pleasant to look at. Something that is pleasant to be with. Something that is only good, full of joy and happiness to be around. Add in this excellence. Because that's what God is. Total perfection. Be ye perfect, for I am perfect. Be ye holy, just because I am holy. That's what he's telling us. And there's another thing. It seems that once you've got this kind of desire, this excellency, this virtue, then what you want to do is just get more knowledge, and that's what he says. And to this excellency, you add in knowledge. Now, that's not epinosis, that's just gnosis. He says you take a part here and you bring it in, because you can't get instant knowledge, can you, like potatoes? You have to take a little bit from here and add it into you. And you take another piece here. And so every day we're looking to get a little. That's why we gather here that we might get more and more. You seem to think you know so much as you're going through your scriptures. Then you come to Bible school and find out you know so little and you start all over again. It's marvelous. So we add in knowledge. And where do you get that knowledge from? You're looking outside of the book. You're looking in the wrong place comes from here. Keep your eyes on that book. Search it. They are they which speak of me, said Jesus. So we get knowledge because we want to be more excellent, have more virtue, and we build in knowledge there. Then in the sixth verse he says, we build in temperance. Well, we don't want to be filled with our own egotism. And so we have to build in self-control. As you get a little bit of knowledge, you know, you seem to think you really got it. 
Look, let me tell you. I can't tell you anything, nor you me, really. We're too thick-headed most of the time. But we're able to set aside ourselves if we recognize that what's being told to us is the word of God. And so we have self-control. We don't allow the knowledge to puff us up and make us egotistical or think that we're better than we are. It is God who is great and we are the vessel that is being used. So we add in self-control. And then we get, we've got to add in patience. You know, you, you just can't leave that out of your life because self-control is something that, well, I can do it today. I just won't allow anybody to upset me today. And you get through the day and say, I did it. Then tomorrow they start in again. But you need <laughs> patience. That self-control is never something you can just say, well, today I don't have to exercise self-control. Yes, you do. We have to have patience. Self-control can never be just set aside. We need to daily, constantly, continually wait. And with that patience comes God-likeness. Because God is long-suffering and patient with us. And to that godliness is brotherly kindness. And we recognize that each one, no matter what station he is in life, what station or what height he's risen to in the truth, is still trying to rise. And so... We are kind to one another, just as God is kind to us. Kindness, you know, sometimes means we rebuke, but it's done in kindliness, isn't it? We don't just say things that are unkind if they're not going to help. We're kind, brotherly kindness. We have this fraternal feeling for one another. And then, of course, the supreme love. A selfless love, whereby any and all can be embraced, even our enemies, can be embraced by us. That's the ingredients of God. That's what we keep adding into our life until we've got a meal offering that can be laid on the altar and given to our Heavenly Father. That it might be consumed by his zeal and his desire for us. And he says... If you do these things and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, is it important? He that lacketh these things is blind. He cannot see afar off the precious promises, the joy that is set before us. He cannot see these things. And he's forgotten 
that he was purged from sins. Were you a sinner? Just like me. Have you been purged? Have you been baptized? Will you be like God? Yes. Now and perfectly in the future. Brother John, for those spiritual food which you have given to us this morning. The uh, time has come now for us to have a coffee break and our next class will...